Thank you, Josh and Allison, for leading us in that time of worship. It's just so great to be with you this morning on Palm Sunday, the beginning of what we call Holy Week. Uh, my name is Bethany, and I'm the women's pastor here. And my name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here as well. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it's a privilege for us to be with you on Palm Sunday. Uh, but before we get going, I, I do want to say something about Palm Sunday. Years ago at another church, we had a good friend who had recently come to Jesus. And after he had gone through his first Easter, he sent me a note. And he said, I need to ask you a question about the church. And immediately when I got that email, I thought, I bet he's wondering uh, if he could get some evidence about the resurrection because it was just after Easter. And I thought, well, maybe he's looking for um, some clarification about an issue the church took a stand on but I'll never forget when we met what his question was. And he said, hey man, why did we have a special service for palm trees? <laughs> and I remember thinking, you know, even as a kid on Palm Sunday, we got really focused on the details, the, the, the palm trees, the donkey, people saying Hosanna. And I think we forgot or missed sight of what Palm Sunday is all about. Ultimately, Palm Sunday is all about the kingship of Jesus. And friends, he really is a king like none other before. And in this world, this past year, we've experienced too much death, too much disease, too much chaos and confusion and conflict. And we're looking to find out who's in control, who holds the world in his hands, who's worth trusting, who can mend our relationships, mend our bodies, and even better, mend our souls. So friends, today we're going to look at Palm Sunday and the story in the Bible is called Jesus's triumphal entry. And we're going to look at it as it's recorded in the gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be in Matthew 20, chapter 20, verse 29 through chapter 21, verse 11. And we're going to work our way through. But before we read our text and we pray, I do want to say just something real quickly about studying the Bible or Bible study methods. God inspired people to write God's word. But there are certain things that, that we can do to discern uh, what God may be emphasizing or wanting to communicate in certain texts. Uh, one of those things that we can do is we can look for uh, times where words are being repeated, so repetition, or we can look at comparisons and contrasts. Or we can look at when uh, a book of the Bible gives a, a large portion of space to a certain subject or event or person or issue. Uh, and that's actually called the law of proportion. So a good example of that would be like in the Song of Solomon as it discusses uh, marriage. When we look at the Song of Solomon, 7% of the verses address attraction. 17% address dating, 15% address courtship, 17% address the honeymoon, <laughs> but 28% of the verses address conflict, which sounds about right. Sounds about right. <laughs> Except for maybe when you're writing a sermon together. But friends, just as a sidebar, if you're experiencing conflict right now in your marriage, just a couple things. God's not surprised. 
He is with you. He loves you. And best of all, our God specializes in reconciling relationships. But friends, as the law of proportion applies to the gospel of Matthew, we see in chapter, chapters 1 through 20 actually cover about 30 years. But chapter 21 through 28, nine days. The first 20 chapters are like a bunch of film cuts of Jesus's life. Like Jesus went here and did this. And then six months later, he did this. And then a year later, he did that. But as we close in on chapter 21, Matthew is wanting to narrow our vision. He's getting very detailed about that last week of Jesus's life. And he's wanting us to see that Jesus is the hero of this story. He's wanting us to understand what Jesus is about to do for us. He wants us to understand that Jesus is now walking his way to the crescendo of human history, the cross. So with that stage set, let's go ahead and read our text this morning and pray. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I just... um come to you this morning, Lord, um, with hands empty. We just need you. We need you to speak to us. We need you to change us. And we just thank you this morning, Lord, that we get to be your children and learn from you and that you love us and are our King. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you'll turn with me, uh, Matthew 20, 29 through 21, 11 says this. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting on the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. And as they approached Jerusalem, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, and tie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna! to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So this morning, we want to look at a few things that this passage communicates to us about Jesus. First, we see that he reveals he is God. Second, he requires a response. And third, he rejects our expectations. And finally, he returns. So friends, he reveals himself as king. Look with me, uh, chapter 20, verses 29 through 34 again. And friends, I I can't overemphasize how um, incredibly significant this group of verses are. Here we see Jesus coming out of Jericho with a crowd and these two blind men are crying out to him, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And they're crying out the first time they say that and the crowd kind of shushes them, but they refuse to be shushed. They cry out again, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. Friends, the significance of that statement, well, one, Lord is uh, a term of submission, but son of David reminds us of 2 Samuel 7, where God promises to David, that there will be an eternal king that will sit on the throne. And they're applying that to Jesus. It's incredibly significant. But what's even more significant is Jesus's response. Up to that point, friends, when Jesus would do a miracle, he would tell the person he did the miracle for to not share it with anyone. When someone tried to elevate him to be king or um, to, to you know, say, this is the promised one. He'd say, my time has not come. My hour is not yet. In fact, I think in the gospel of John, four times Jesus does that. But I love what Tim Keller points out, that in this situation, that second time when they say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, his response is incredible. He says, essentially, as Tim Keller says, yes, what can I help you with? Friends, at that moment, Jesus is saying, yeah, that title, son of David, it applies to me. And he reveals himself as the king, the promised one. And then we read on that Jesus feels this compassion deep in his heart to heal these two blind men who I'd point out are blind physically but could recognize Jesus perfectly clear and who he was. And so then Jesus heals these blind men. And as we read, you, you can't help but think about when Jesus began his ministry in Luke chapter four, he quoted Isaiah 61 and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, in that moment, as he healed those men, he fulfilled that. He did just that. But let's continue on to uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. 
Here we now see Jesus getting very, very dialed in. Like um, he knows exactly what he wants to do. He's working a plan. He's like, go here, get this, these donkeys, say this, bring them here. It's as if up to that point, Jesus has been saying, uh, this isn't my time. My hour is not yet. And then all of a sudden it was like, yeah, this is my time. And it's now. And so he mounts that donkey and he rides towards his execution on our behalf. But friends, as you read this and you know he's revealed himself as king, you can't help but go, why a donkey? Like a donkey is transportation for, transportation for a servant, not transfer, transportation for a king. And I remember I, I had a good friend in high school and he come from, came from a very, very wealthy family, like servants, the whole deal. And I remember as he was getting ready to turn 16, he would brag to us about the car his dad was going to buy him. But I'll never forget the day that he showed up at school with his new car. And rather than being the brand new Mustang he had promised, he showed up with a 1978 Mercury Bobcat. And for those of you who aren't familiar with cars, that's like the souped up Ford Pinto with like blue shag carpet on the floors, on the doors and on the ceilings. Friends, it turns out his dad bought him a car, but he bought it from one of their servants. But again, the question is, why is Jesus riding the donkey, the transportation of a servant? There's a couple of different reasons, but look with me at verses chapters or verses four and five. It says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the full of a burst of beaten, a burst, beast of burden. Friends, that is the prophecy from Zechariah chapter nine. When Jesus mounts that donkey, he is fulfilling prophecy and leaving no question that he is the promised king. He is revealing himself as the one that was promised to David, the king that will sit on his throne for eternity. And after revealing that he is God, he requires a response. He basically says to the religious and the political leaders, you either have to acknowledge and accept that I am the promised king or deny me and destroy me. Essentially, crown me or kill me. And he makes it very clear that he is the promised king and he requires a response from them and he requires a response from us. Either make me king, he says, and Lord, or deny me and kill me. But I'm not here to just be liked. It's all or nothing with Jesus. Now we see in the passage directly after this one that Jesus enters the temple and he finds people exchanging money there and cheating people. And what does Jesus do? Well, he comes in, he turns over the tables, rearranges the furniture, and he says, this is my house and my house will be a house of prayer and not a den of robbers. 
Now, if you were sitting on the couch in your living room or at home, as I know some of you at home are sitting on your couch right now, and someone walked in through your front door and turned over a table and started rearranging the furniture, what would you do? Well, you would likely, I don't know, call the police or order them to leave or something like that. And why is that? Well, the only person who has the authority to come into a home, turn over the tables, or rearrange the furniture is the owner. And that's what Jesus is saying and communicating at this time. He's saying, I am the owner. I am the authority. And you either accept me for who I am, which is the promised king, the deliverer, or deny me. But you can't ignore me. Now, some may say, you know, I believe in Jesus or, you know, I really like him. He's so kind and he's loving and he's, you know, compassionate and he is. I mean, that's who he is. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is Exodus 34, where God reveals who he is, his character for the first time. And he says that he is compassionate and merciful, that he's patient, full of great loyalty and and faithfulness showing great loyalty to a thousand generations, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. And then we look at Jesus. We look at his life, how he's God in flesh. And we see his humility and his tenderness, his gentleness, the way that he welcomes children and responds to women and loves them. And we see his compassion for the the poor and the prostitutes and the outcasts and those who are in the margins who have been cast out and the people of other races and nations, not to mention his unfailing love. And it is these characteristics of Jesus that draws us to him. That is who he is. And he is also the one who says things like, before Abraham was, I was, I existed. And one day I will return to judge the whole world. Now, do you also accept that side of Jesus, the side that overturns the tables and the temple and commands authority and says, I am king? You know, so many of us struggle with authority. I know Um, I do at times. We don't like it when someone else is in charge. We want to be king. We think that we know how things should go. Um, Just recently, I was um, praying, you know, the situation just fervently for um, these circumstances to change for someone. And I really felt like I knew what the outcome should be. So I was just praying for that outcome. And then the outcome was actually the opposite of what I had been praying for. And I remember thinking, really, God? (laughs) Like, this? This doesn't make any sense. Like, I know how this story should go. Like, when are you going to get on board with my plans, Jesus? I think we all tend to want to be king of our lives, for things to make sense to us, to sit on the throne and call the shots. And if we can't call the shots, then how about if I just kind of pick and choose the things that I like about Jesus and make him in to a person that I want him to be, that makes me feel comfortable or that serves me. And that's fine. 
you can do that if he wasn't real. You can create your own Jesus if he didn't exist. But he is real. He does exist. And we all have to make a decision as to whether or not we will submit to and follow the biblical Jesus, the real true Jesus, the one that he says he is and the one that we see revealed to us in scripture. Tim Keller tells a story of this Bible teacher. Her name is Barbara Boyd, and I love this. This is what she says or how she explains lordship. She says, my name is Barbara Boyd. If you were to say to me, come in Barbara, but stay out Boyd, well, that doesn't work for me because I'm both Barbara and Boyd. And with Jesus, you can't say, come in Savior, but stay out Lord. Or come in helper, but stay out king. So each one of us must ask, will I let the real Jesus be king? Will I submit every aspect of my life to him, holding nothing back? My money, my time, my future, my marriage, my singleness, my children, my health. He is so trustworthy, he is so good, and he held nothing back for you or for me. But he laid down his life because he loves us so much. And third, we see in this passage that Jesus rejects our expectations. As Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy that Paul mentioned in Zechariah, the people clearly had expectations of him. So the word was out about his miracles and what he had done. And the people really wanted to know, is this who we have been waiting for? Is this the promised king? And then here comes Jesus, not on a large, fierce, white horse, like all of the other powerful Roman leaders during like a Roman triumphant that they were accustomed to, but he is on the back of a baby donkey. And it's, I mean, it's almost funny. It's sort of like your, your friend's 1978 Bobcat. Um, but I'm sure the disciples too, uh, they must have wanted Jesus to be respected and to be taken seriously as they had been following him. And I would imagine they were probably thinking like, really, Jesus, this mode of transportation? But Jesus knew what he was doing, and he chose to ride in on a baby donkey who was unbroken and untrained, and he did this intentionally. And it crossed my mind this week. I was thinking, how did he even keep this baby donkey calm? I mean, there's all these people yelling and waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna, and I read this in, in a commentary this week by D.A. Carson. He says this, In the midst of all of this, an unbroken young animal remains totally calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature and calms the storm. This even points to the peace of the consummated kingdom. Jesus is the Lord of all, and under his hand, nothing but harmony and peace comes about. The animal knows and loves his true master for who he is. And I just love that. 
And one of the things that Jesus is doing here is he's, he's making a statement about the kind of king that he has come to be and the kind of kingdom that he's ushering in. He knows the expectations of the people are to be a warrior king, to overthrow the Romans. And in this moment, he rejects those expectations. He's ushering in a different kind of kingdom, one that they had never seen before. And it's an upside down kingdom where if you want to find your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, you will find it. Where the last is first and the first is last. Where the least is greatest and the greatest is least. And where if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. And if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. He's coming in to rule and to save, but not by taking power and killing, but by losing power and dying. He's on his way to the cross to give up that power, and he's coming to triumph through weakness. As John Piper said in a sermon I listened to this week, he said, what man regards as weak, God makes the means of victory. And what man regards as foolishness, God makes the means of triumph. And none of this makes any sense to them or meets their expectations of their promised king. In verse 8, we see that most of the crowd spreads their coats on the ground and they cut branches from the trees and they're saying, Hosanna, son of David. And Hosanna doesn't mean like, you know, hooray for you. Um, It means help. So it means help, I pray, or help, save me. Um, But save us from what? Their current circumstances, Roman influence, their poverty, Were they really crying out, God, save us from our sin? They didn't know what they needed to be saved from. They wanted him to bring down judgment on the Romans, but what they actually needed was someone to bear their judgment. What they really needed, just like you and me, is a savior. Friends, if I could just say one more thing about the crowd that day, I think it should be an example to us, probably the best example of the the emptiness and the, the fickle nature of human approval and praise. As one of our favorite commentators pointed out, there were people coming into Jerusalem and people leaving Jerusalem, but statistically, the reality is, is that some of those people that were chanting Hosanna and celebrating Jesus that day, within a week, We're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Friends, we spend a lot of time online in our our lives seeking the approval and the praise of people. And even if we're one of the lucky ones and we get our 15 minutes of fame, friends, it's not long before we're kicked to the curb. I love what Dr. John Johnson says. He's like, today's hero uh, becomes tomorrow's discard. But friends, I want to compare the approval and the praise of people with the approval and the praise of your father, the king. I'm going to read a few verses to you. Romans 8, 38. 
For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hebrews 13, 5, and it translates this way. I will never, 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 five nevers, leave you or forsake you. Psalms 27, 10, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And friends, you know the psalmist's refrain. It's all throughout the Psalms. We repeated it earlier this year. His steadfast love endures forever. Friends, follow him, serve him, and then just experience joy and peace, resting in the love and the approval of your father. You already have approval of the only one that matters. So good. You know, when Jesus um, rode in on that donkey 2,000 years ago, the people were wanting him to make everything right in their world. But he had come to make them right with God. And that is still Amen. what each one of us needs. That is our deepest need. Not for our circumstances to change, but to be made right with God that is provided for us with the sacrifice on the cross. And to know him and to walk with him and to follow after him. And one day, Jesus will return again. And when he does, he will return on a different horse, not a donkey this time. And this time it will be to end all evil, death, suffering, injustice, pain, sickness that we see in Revelation 21. I can't wait for that day. <laughs> so friends, today, as you're looking for someone to trust, to put your hope in, how about the sovereign God of the universe who spoke everything into existence with just his words, who created you in his image and in spite of your brokenness and sin pursued you and today presents himself to you to be your king. Only so then he can then go and die for you and that by faith alone in him alone, you can have life. Friends, no, he is not just a prophet. He is not just a teacher. He's not your favorite activist or inspirational speaker. He is nothing less than the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of this world. Friends, would you pray with us? Father, um, you are our King. And we desire to submit every part of our life to you. Thank you for pursuing us, even in our brokenness and our sin, and for giving us what we needed most to be made right with you. Father, you are a God, a king, like our world has not known. 
And we desire to become like your son and to make you known. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.